Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Style That Finds Us podcast. We are excited to have Dr. Mary O'Connor back for a part two. She is the author, the co-author of the Taking Care of You book, and we are going to continue speaking about women's health today. So thank you, Dr. Mary, for coming back. My pleasure. Delighted to be with you again. I think women have so many, so many questions about all of these things. That's why this book is so important. And that's why we're so thrilled about you being on the podcast. And I alluded to the fact in our last recording that I recently was diagnosed with endometrial cancer. And my doctor said to me, you know, if you have to have one, this is a good one because we're going to go in there. We're just going to take it all out. We're going to give you a hysterectomy, complete hysterectomy laparoscopically. So that's what they did. And, you know, you have so many emotions when you're going into that. I didn't want to tell my family, specifically my mother or my daughter, you know, what it really was because I didn't want them to worry until I actually, I really wanted the whole thing to be over. And then I could say, oh, guess what? Guess what happened to me? You know, (laughs) but then no one would worry. But obviously that couldn't happen because I did need support. And then afterwards, the recovery was longer than I thought it was going to be. I pushed myself too hard and I may have even delayed my recovery. Those are the things that I wanted to talk to you about. And also the last thing is the importance of having a relationship with your doctor, whatever, you know, all of your doctors, so that something very small Like for me, it was spotting and I didn't even think anything of it for a couple of months. And then I thought, maybe I should mention this to her because it wasn't really bothering me, you know, and she said, you need to come in tomorrow. So, and they quickly did the biopsy. So all of those things, I think are areas where women could, could use some advice about how to handle these kinds of things. Allison, let me pipe in here because I think this point that you're raising is so important. Okay. I'm going to do the 30,000 foot view level for a moment. Okay. You are educated, intelligent, mm-hmm. uh, a woman with resources, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You did not know that bleeding after menopause, mm-hmm. even spotting is never normal, never normal. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. So that's why when you called and you said, I'm having, I'm having some spotting, mm-hmm. the doctor knew that this was a very urgent, you needed to be evaluated right away, not six weeks later, not eight weeks later, mm-hmm. right? You needed to come in so they could do some tests and figure out what was going on. Mm-hmm. But I believe that most women don't know that basic fact. If mm-hmm. you have bleeding after menopause- right. That is never normal, never, ever normal. And you need to call immediately. Okay. So why don't women know that? Mm-hmm. Why are we not educated enough about these, these kind of important things that could right. happen to us? Well, because we're just not. And because, and we should be, and that again is the purpose of the book, right? To right. help right. women understand these things. And we actually have a chapter on endometrial cancer, which which says in bold letters under the pearls of wisdom section, bleeding after menopause, even just spotting is never normal. Right. Right. So we we don't talk as a society about 
menses, right? No, definitely, right. It's like um, your periods are like taboo. Right. And so when you have irregular bleeding, right, p- women yeah. don't always know, like, when should I call? Mm-hmm. What is within the realm of, of, of okay, mm-hmm. even I might not be regular with my periods versus mm-hmm. not okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. I know it's, it's very uh, challenging. You know, your primary care doctor has a lot to do. Right. I, I don't, I, 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 I do not think that they can educate everyone at the level Right. That people should be educated. Right. I know. Right. They don't have the time. Is Otherwise, that even their responsibility? Their responsibility is to take care of sick people. So, you know, at this point, that's sort of the role of doctors, right? They don't sit there at, at every appointment and let you know. Now, if this happens, if this happens, if this happens, you know, uh, well, send home a list of all these things you need to be looking out for. That's that's just impossible. But every woman goes through menopause. I mean, right. if you live long enough, you're going to go through menopause. Right. So I don't know. And maybe some people, some physicians and practices do. Like, what's the tip sheet right. for, for menopause, right? And can you put a bullet point there that says any bleeding after menopause is never normal. And you need to call me right away if you're having spotting or any kind of bleeding. Right. And until that happens, we're just lucky to have your book. Well, thank you. I, I'm hopeful that that even someone listening to this podcast that it will save it will it will save someone's life, literally. Literally, exactly. Totally. If I had just never, you know, I, I, thank goodness it was very, very contained, and it was able no spreading. You know, they checked the lymph nodes and everything. So I was very, very lucky, but it was like a fluke that I thought to even investigate. I have no idea why. Like you said, I mean, I very much, I take care of myself. I know what's going on in my body pretty much and all that, but it was definitely a wake up call. And during the process, I did, you know, as you and I talked to it a little while ago, this idea that I decided that even though they said six to eight weeks when it's laparoscopic, it's is really, you know, the beginning of when you're going to start feeling better. I decided that would be at two weeks for me. I have no <laughs> why, but I knew it was only going to take me two weeks. And I'm 60 years old. So by the end of three weeks, Delia and I had been on uh, TV shows in Delaware and in Boston. I had gone to Greenwich with clients. I mean, it was crazy. And finally, on the way back on the train from Boston, I looked at Delia and I said, I have no business doing this. I could just tell I was really at a dangerous place. I was definitely not doing what what I should be doing. And so I came home and promptly just got back in the bed for, you know, like 10 days to hopefully, um, you know, not have done any major damage. But I think you said that's one of the problems when women try, you know, to get back to life because they feel like they have so many responsibilities if they do it too quickly. Correct. It's a really, really important point. So as an orthopedic surgeon, I've operated on lots and lots of patients over the years. And typically, I know this might sound like a sexist statement, but I'm going to make it anyway, because this is my experience. Mm-hmm. Men have surgery and they have great support teams around them. Mm-hmm. Women have surgery, which basically means their wife, the you know, is taking is oh, helping, sure. helping the husband recover. Sure. The the wife, mother has surgery, and you know what happens? 
the daughter comes home. Ah. The daughter comes home to help the mom. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a wonderful thing for your daughter to come home and help you. Right. But I'm just pointing, it's. Right. Women need, and and if their husband isn't going to be a good person to provide that support, because not everybody is a good support person. Okay. And that's not a judgment. That's just a fact. Right. See if your daughter can come home. But when people are recovering from surgery, patients need to give themselves time to recover. And their primary focus has to be on themselves and their recovery. And if they don't do that, Mm -hmm. then they put themselves at higher risk of developing a complication. Mm -hmm. Okay. I mean, here's just a short example. So I did a knee replacement on a lovely gentleman. This was a few years ago, and he was a carpenter. Mm -hmm. You know, he he liked to build things. He was retired, but he was still pretty active. Mm -hmm. Two weeks later, he comes in, his knee it is all swollen. I mean, I was very concerned he had an, an infection, right? Oh, right. I'm like, I'm like, what happened? I just saw you. I mean, literally, I just saw you like five days ago. Your knee looked great. And he's like, oh, I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. And I could tell, by the way, his wife was sitting there, just oh, body language, like, that's not true. That's <laughs> just not true. So I'm like, sorry, I'm not buying it something happened between then and now, and you need to tell me what it was. And so then he finally confesses. Yeah. I, I was down on my knees doing doing carpentry work. I'm like, are you out? Are you out of your mind? Right. Like now, and now, right now you've got this red swollen knee and I don't know that you didn't get it infected. And then we had to take him back to the OR to wash out, open his wound and wash it off. So like people, (laughs) I know this sounds really crazy, but you actually need to listen to what the doctor and surgeon say recovery, right? And what everybody says. When I look back now, I'm thinking maybe after surgery, you don't have, your judgment is, is messed up or something because so many people said to me, this is real surgery. This is, this is, this is going to be a major trauma for your body. And you have to go gentle on yourself. You have to give yourself time. And I literally remember hearing it. It took about 20 times until I got scared after Boston that I thought I should have lit. Why didn't I listen to that? Why did I not, you know, internalize that? Why didn't that man realize I just had knee surgery? Why would it be smart for me to get down on my knee? Well, because we all think as, even as, as patients, right, uh-huh. that we're going to do better than the norm. We're going to, uh-huh. we, we all right. think that, I mean, everybody thinks that. Oh, that, that is so funny and sad, but it's so true. But it's true, especially for people that are high achievers, right? So you're busy, you're a very high achiever. There's no reason for you not to have the mindset that I'm going to get over this quickly. Right. I can do this. I'm healthy. Right. No problem. Right. And and in some ways, it's always good to have a positive mindset. But my message to the listeners is please recognize that you need to put your own health needs first. And that also comes in the form of time, adequate time for recovery from any kind of serious medical Mm -hmm. illness or surgery. Mm -hmm. And there's 
but Allison, one other point that I wanted to make um, about and about bleeding after menopause mm-hmm. that that we have in our book is that African American women in the U.S. Mm-hmm. are much more likely to have a more aggressive form of endometrial cancer and have worse outcomes after treatment, regardless of the stage of the cancer. So, like. Like it's really important for all women if if they feel they're having abnormal bleeding or particularly again any bleeding after menopause, right? To to call their physician and African American women are at higher risk of having aggressive endometrial cancer, so even more important for them. Yes, definitely, and that leads me to the next thing about they were able to tell me that I had microsatellite high, which sounds scary, but it was actually, you know, a good thing. And then also the biopsy showed that I might, I might have a tendency towards something called Lynch syndrome, which the way they described it to me meant that I had a greater chance of getting colon cancer possibly. But she told me my last visit, when I went back, she said that actually you do not have it after all, but we still want you to do genetic testing for your daughter. So the genetic testing now is amazing. I mean, there's so many, so many different things they can, they can check for, but it's been interesting. The conversations I've had with friends lately, when I mentioned that they're like, well, I wouldn't want to know, but what she said to me was for you and your daughter, if this is when I possibly had the Lynch syndrome, if it did show that you had a higher chance of getting colon cancer, it's, it just means you get a colonoscopy every year instead of every 10 years, you know, these, so I just feel like, do you think things like that are, are important for us to consider? Absolutely. So, you know, Lynch syndrome. And so I'm so happy you had good doctors because, because absolutely that should have been part of the conversation, right? right? Because this uh, it, it is an unusual syndrome. It's not common, but if you have it, then you're at risk of developing several cancers. And as you mentioned, colon cancer, but if a woman had Lynch syndrome, then they should have, that woman should have basically an endometrial biopsy every one to two years, mm-hmm. starting at age 30 or 35. I mean, so, so like it's really important to know that because and I had no idea until I was 60, you know, until this happened. And I then know, the policy showed that. But now you've um, been evaluated. And so, you know, right, that you don't yeah. have the yes. genetic predisposition. And that's really wonderful news for your daughter. Yes, exactly. And also, you know, the microsatellite high, when they were talking about that to me, that sounds so scary. But in fact, that's actually a good thing if you have that that right it's in your book about yep so that means if you do if it does come back you have a higher chance of responding we talked about this in the last podcast that we recorded because now they know exactly what to use if it ever does come back this is all just so amazing and that was the other thing that i wanted to talk about with you is helping people not be scared because now there are so many new things coming coming down the pipe that are going to help people get diagnosed early. I'm literally have friends who said, I'm not, I don't get a mammogram. I'm I'm too scared to know the results. And I I was so surprised that someone who was college, college educated 
a healthy person who maybe it's because I was raised by a doctor or something, you know, my father's doctor, but it floored me. I mean, I am obsessed with getting my mammogram and, and even then getting my pap smear every year, all of that stuff. I still ended up having something. How do you get women to, especially women, maybe that don't have a lot of support, like you said, to be able to even take time off to go to the doctor or don't even know where to go. I mean, how do you. It's very hard. And it is a, I say it's a societal problem because we see it. In, and honestly, you know, women are are impacted to a greater degree because it's women. And again, I know this is a very broad right. statement, but women are still the individuals responsible for the children. Right. And so when a woman needs to go to the doctor, right, who's going to take care of the kids? Mm-hmm. The husband's working. She's probably working too. She might right? not have a husband. She might not have a husband. She may be a single mom. Right. Right. And so, yes, there's there's many challenges. Now, some of the good news is that a lot of, you know, primary care medical groups will have extended hours in the evening or even some on Saturday. Mm -hmm. And so my suggestion to women out there that are in this situation where it's really hard for them to get time off from work, Mm -hmm. two things. The first is use telemedicine. Ah, yes. Use telemedicine. Okay. Now, my my conflict here is that, you know, I am co-founder and chief medical officer of a uh, nationwide Mm -hmm. uh, musculoskeletal telemedicine company. So I believe very strongly Mm -hmm. in the convenience and power of telemedicine. Right. It takes so much less time. Like in my own experience... Um, when I had to have some shoulder surgery a couple years ago, right? And I had to go to physical therapy. Mm-hmm. That, I had to schedule an hour and a half out of my day to do this. I had right. to drive. And okay, it's a 20 minute drive. So it's not like I'm driving a long distance, but I got to drive to the people, right? I got to check in, I got to do the session, and then I have to drive back to work. Right. That is a huge amount of time. Like I'm a very busy person. I don't have an hour and a half to just when, when I could do it online in 30 minutes. Right, right, right. Exactly. I'm so glad you said that because it's still not, uh, it's so new that it's not everybody's immediately, you know, their first thought. So for example, with you, uh you could have done a, telemedicine visit with your PCP and said, I'm having some spotting. Mm-hmm. You didn't need, you know, to, of course you called her, but you know what I'm saying? Like if somebody was waiting for an appointment to go in, that takes longer right. than a telemedicine visit. And what could have happened right then and there is you didn't have to go in to see your primary care doctor because your primary care doctor already knew from your telemedicine visit Mm-hmm. We need to go ahead and do an ultrasound or other testing to look at the uterus to try and understand if right. there's something more c- concerning going on, like endometrial cancer, right? right? So I would strongly encourage women, women who are busy, which is, you know, pretty much everybody, everybody right? right, to find a good primary care doctor or primary care nurse practitioner 
someone that you can be comfortable with and trust. That is the most important thing. Without that level of trust, you're not going to be comfortable sharing your concerns. Secondly, if that um, doctor or nurse practitioner does telemedicine, that will save you a huge amount of time. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's a great, great advice. And also I had written a newsletter um, in my Celebrating Life Over 40 in that platform that we have. And I, um, I mean, I'm vertical, but anyway, I had talked to people about having uh, women about having a good relationship with specifically with your OBGYN. And I told them that because that's what I have. And I can reach out to her and ask her questions. And I have done that so many times. I just never thought to mention this one, but because I had the relationship with her already, when I called her, I got to go straight to the OB and I went in the next day and she did the biopsy right then. So it was so quick because I think I was comfortable enough to say, you know, I hope I'm not bothering you with this. This is probably nothing, but because that's the other thing, women feel like they're bothering people. Let's say you're a woman and you've done something to your knee. You run like Delia. So your knee has been bothering you ever since, you know, for a long time, but you don't have time to go get it checked out. So you just keep living your life and putting all the pressure or whatever on, on that joint and everything. And then by the time you go, it's something much worse than it would have been. Do you see patients like that a lot when you think, I sure wish you had come in earlier? Absolutely. We'll take knee pain because Mm -hmm. pain and knee arthritis is very common in women. Mm -hmm. Women are at much greater risk of developing knee arthritis than men, particularly after menopause, which which says that there there is some type of hormonal influence Mm -hmm. on cartilage, which is the tissue Mm -hmm. that is the cushioning tissue in the joint. And when the cartilage wears away, that's arthritis. So the challenge is, is to see those women when they're younger and they're getting mild to moderate arthritis and get them to lose weight because Mm -hmm. a lot of them are overweight, not everybody. Sure, sure. Get on an anti-inflammatory diet and to do exercises that keep their muscles strong because when you have strong muscles, it helps absorb the impact and of, of walking, basically, of weight-bearing activities. Mm-hmm. So, so many women I, I would see that, you know, I just wanted to say, oh, I wish you had seen me 10 years ago, right? Because right. 10 years ago, we could have made such a difference. Ah. If, if, now, having said that, part of the problem with our current healthcare system is that, is that <laughs> we don't give patients the support they need to make those kind of style behavior changes, which again is something that we talk about a lot in the book. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as a side, my new company, Vori Health, we have health coaches that see our patients, right? Because the the doctors are not trained in motivational interviewing or how are you going to help me make those behavior changes that are going to improve my sleep or Mm -hmm. improve the way that I eat or increase my physical activity? Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so those patients could come to see me and I would say, you know, if you lose weight, it's really, really going to help your knee pain. It's going to mm-hmm. help prevent or delay progression of your arthritis. Every 10 extra pounds of weight you're carrying is an additional 30 to 60 pounds of pressure on your knees. 
Wow. Wow. Exactly. Wow. Weight is such a critical factor. And it's not just the pressure. When we're overweight, it creates what we call a pro-inflammatory metabolic environment in your body, which an inflammation as a, as a general statement is bad. Sometimes mm-hmm. you, sometimes it's good after you get a cut or something because mm-hmm. the inflammatory process promotes healing and helps decrease infection, things like that. But as, as a general statement, right, being in this kind of pro-inflammatory state is bad for your health, your heart health, your musculoskeletal health, all kinds of things. But that woman sitting in front of me could nod her head and say, yes, I know I'm overweight. I know that what you're saying makes sense and I need to lose weight and I need to be more active and strengthen my muscles. But I give her no tools to do that. Ah, yes. I, I, as the orthopedic surgeon, do not give her the support to do it. I just say, this would really, really help you. Right. And she walks out the door. Now, does she get support from her primary care physician to for the behavior change that she needs to accomplish weight loss and increase her level of physical activity? No. Mm-hmm. That's why, you know, evolving our healthcare system mm-hmm. to incorporate the support that patients need for behavioral health change is so important. Okay, so like they would see you and you would Tell them this, and then you would say, and we're going to have a health coach come in and speak to you right now about ways you can do that. Well, that's what I realized we needed and that wasn't happening in the traditional system. Uh And so um, with the company that I've co-founded, Vori Health, and I know this is a plug for my company. No, no, no. I think it's great to know that these things, you know, it's available. Our model is come see us if you've got any kind of musculoskeletal meaning, you know, neck, back, knee, hip, shoulder, right? If you've got a concern, you see us, it's virtual. So it's online. You're going to see a doctor, a non-surgeon doctor, but a doctor who has expertise in musculoskeletal medicine, because every patient deserves a diagnosis. And to have a diagnosis, you need a doctor because the doctors are trained in how to make diagnoses. Now, nurse practitioners can also be excellent. I'm not, that's, but yes. as a general statement, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and physical therapists, and I love physical therapists, but they're they're not trained in the full scope of considering why you have a, a certain pain and is it okay or could this be a more worrisome sign mm-hmm. of something else? So, so they have a doctor that we have a virtual, they have a virtual physical therapist and a virtual health coach. And then we will pull in a registered dietitian if somebody needs more advanced nutritional support Mm -hmm. than what our health coaches can give. It's been so gratifying. This is probably one of the most gratifying things I've ever done in my entire professional career because we are making such a positive change in so many patients' Mm -hmm. lives. Mm -hmm. And it really boils down to giving them that support to help make these changes that help them get better without surgery. And I'm a surgeon. Listen, you know, we know that some people still need surgery. We will refer our patients that we think need to see a surgeon to a great surgeon. Okay. But we're going to try to get them better first without an operation because every operation has risk. 
And unfortunately, in the orthopedic and spine world, we know that there's a lot of overutilization of surgery. Right. And that's it's not always the outcome isn't always, you know, what you'd hoped it was going to be. Well, it's, it's not just the outcome. It's that patients are having surgery that yeah. based on established guidelines right. should not. Right. And then with every surgery, there's a risk of complication. There's a recovery time, you know, there's. Right, 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 right. Downtime away from work and everything. Yeah. Else. All right. Well, that's all exciting that, that you've come up with this and hopefully other people are going to see how well it works. And this will be the future, you know, of the way um, most medical practices are run. We have to transform the delivery of healthcare because it's not working to help our communities and country be healthier. Mm-hmm. And again, that was part of the reason why Conwall and I wrote this book mm-hmm. to get information, important information out to women right now to empower them to be better advocates for their own health. Mm-hmm. Right. Because you can't change things overnight. Right. right. And we talk about, in the book, health coaching and um, physical activity, the importance of sleep, you know, all all of those things that we tend to overlook because, you know, may not fit in with our current lifestyle. Right. Right. And certainly if you're someone like my age, it's like, I'm unlearning everything. I'm I'm unlearning so many things that I have just let other people take care of for me. You know, like going to see the doctor, you know, you need to go with your list and all those kind of things, but it's so important. And I do think that's a message that is being brought up a lot more these days to be your own advocate in every area of your life as a woman. Absolutely. And one of the things that I think is helping to support that is patients now have a lot more access to their medical records and their results. Right. Right. Every patient should see a doctor that gives them the ability to have an online portal so that they Uh can see their results and their records. Which is amazing because that's what I had too. They sent me to have other tests done. Shouldn't this be done for every woman like every year? Is this not happening like full workups, checking uh, that everything is working well? Is it not done because the testing is expensive or it's dangerous to have it once a year. How can women, you know, if you could have all of that knowledge, then when something did go wrong, you could share it with whatever doctor, you know, it was that you were going to because of the new ailment. So those are really great questions, Allison. When people get older, they should absolutely have an annual physical examination and checkup. When people are younger, say someone's in their early 20s, do they need to go see the doctor every year? Mm-hmm. No, they don't. Okay. They need to have a doctor mm-hmm. that they know and trust, right? And are comfortable with, but they they don't need to go and have, you know, kind of a full evaluation every year. Yeah. Okay. So, so there are a lot of, a lot of factors, age, health, family history, right? And I believe that because um, genetic testing has become so much less expensive. I mean, 
you can do the whole genome sequencing now for $400, meaning $400, we could look at your DNA and know everything about your DNA. Wow. And you only need that done once because it doesn't change. So you could have that done and you would know, well, of course, for you, it ruled out that you don't have Lynch syndrome, right? Mm -hmm. But it would also identify, are you at risk of other cancers or conditions based on your genetic profile? So I think that the genetic testing is going to become more routine as the costs go down. And the other fascinating thing that I know is starting to happen is doing what's called pharmacogenetics, which means that we're looking at your genetic profile because we know that certain genes impact how certain medications are used by your body. Wow. And and that's so important because I know you probably won't be surprised at what I'm going to say next, but guess what? Women metabolize medicines different than men. Oh, gosh. As a general statement, okay? And so there are some medicines that are prescribed, including like anti-anxiety and antidepressive medications that may not be working as well on one individual because of their genetic profile compared to another. So why do I want to give you a medicine that isn't, I, I right now I give you a medicine, you're not improving. And so now it's two or three months later and you have to come back and say, I'm not doing better. And, that, and then I have to believe you, right? Mm-hmm. Instead, of, instead of just saying, just stay with the medicine, let's give it more time, right? Mm-hmm. I believe you and I say, okay, let's try a different medicine. But if at the very start, I knew that that first medicine wasn't going to work for you because of your genetic profile, I would never have started you on it. So, yes, it's another uh, very exciting area of of medicine that is evolving. And I'm I'm hopeful will become much more mainstream because it's better for patients. Right. If you need a medication, I'm going to give you a medication that I am more confident it's going to work for you Two, ultimately, that's going to help patients get better faster. Three. Hopefully, it should drive down healthcare costs. Mm-hmm. Golly, that's exciting! I had definitely had not heard of that. Had you heard of that, Dee? No. So, what age do you recommend someone getting their genetics tested? Uh, that's a great question. I'm not sure if there's experts that would have a mm-hmm. recommendation, so but good. yeah, but there are. Um, I know there's uh, at least one startup company that is doing this work. And I mean, your listeners could know Google pharmacogenetic testing. Mm -hmm. And again, basically it's a cheek swab, right? You get a kit, you swab your cheek, you send it back and they sequence your genome. Just like, you know. I mean, that is remarkable. It is remarkable. And now it's not so now it's not so Mm -hmm. expensive Mm -hmm. and you can get a list of common medications that would not work well for you as an individual. Mm -hmm. So this really could be done anytime. Could be done anytime. 
anytime. Because it doesn't change, right? Your genome, whatever. It doesn't change. Correct. So, I mean, my recollection is that it's about $400 right now. But remember, just a few years ago, that was a couple thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. And when Steve Jobs had his mm-hmm. uh, gene profile sequencing done because mm-hmm. he had cancer, that mm-hmm. was a couple hundred thousand dollars. Wow. But that, you know, he was really on the forefront then. Right. We call now personalized medicine because, because he, had the, money. <laughs> he had the money, he could get his genome sequenced and then use that information and his doctors to try and find the best chemotherapy to target his cancer. Mm-hmm. Now, this kind of personalized medicine approach in cancer is much more common. Mm-hmm. Uh, but often the whole genome is not sequenced, right? There, which, I, which I really don't quite understand. Like if a woman has, uh, has breast cancer, right. right? Then that woman needs to be evaluated to understand if she's got the BRAC gene, because there's right. certain genetic profiles that are going to change the risk and the way the cancer is treated, right? So you're going to do that genetic test, just like sequence the whole genome. But I don't believe that that is done consistently. Um, so, right. I do think we'll, I do think we'll evolve to that. And yeah. it's not like a Theranos situation. Like we actually, these are credible things. I don't yes. want to be telling people no. to swab their cheek and then they get these wrong results or something. No, totally credible. Okay. <laughs> That's a good question. It is a good question. It is a good question. Although I remain incredulous. I mean, when I first heard about that, I'm like, really? Right. Yeah, you take a drop of blood from my finger and you're going to, and you're going to do, tell me if I have cancer. Um, <laughs> no, they could take that drop of blood from your finger and do a genetic profile on you mm-hmm. because all you need is some cells to do a genetic profile. But anyway, we know we know mm-hmm. that very sad story. Yes. And so if someone wanted to get genetically tested, would they start with asking their insurance provider or ask their doctor of how to go about that? So I don't believe that insurance companies would pay for that unless it's part of what would now be considered a standard of care. For example, the breast cancer patient that we just talked about. Okay. Right. Right. So for, for that woman, the insurance company is going to pay for the test. If you say, I'm really interested in knowing what my gen, my, what my genetic profile is, because right. I'd like to know if there are medicines that won't work as well for me. Mm-hmm. I do not believe that there's any insurance company that will right. pay for that right now. I think the science is in head of the ahead of the insurance because I got a letter from my insurance company saying they didn't think it was important. They weren't going to pay for the genetic testing because they didn't think it was necessary, you know, wouldn't help my cancer. So however they worded it. So I took the letter to my oncologist and they they have financial aid and things like that that you can apply for if the insurance company won't pay for the genetic testing and things like that. I think that's the way it's working right now. Either you just pay out of pocket if it's only $400 or if it's going to be a lot more, you know, see what your doctor 
can do and what the, this is through Mount Sinai. So I don't know how other people do it, but anyway, that's the experience that I'm having, especially because I don't have Lynch syndrome. Maybe they would have paid for it if there was that. They're not, but there are ways around it, I guess is what I'm saying. And they still think it's important for me to get the testing, even though, you know, thank goodness I don't have the Lynch syndrome, but just because we can, we can have this knowledge now. So why wouldn't you do it? Well, because there's always an issue of cost and healthcare costs way too much. Mm -hmm. And more and more of those costs are being shouldered by patients and families. Mm -hmm. You know, that bankruptcy, you know, medical costs are driving a a very high percentage of personal bankruptcy. It's so sad. It's very sad. And of course, it shouldn't be that way. Right. You know, fortunately, there are larger systems that have great philanthropic support where they have those kinds of foundations where if a woman couldn't afford to have the test done, mm-hmm. that, they, that she could still have the test done. That's not going to happen in, you know, small, sure. in, in rural America, basically, or it's right. less, I shouldn't say that blanket statement, it's less likely right? It would be more difficult for them. Be more difficult. And, you know, these costs are, they're impactful. Mm -hmm. And these deductibles are insanely ridiculous. I really, I don't understand the healthcare system and especially insurance. And it's just a constant frustration. Well, that's because too, Delia, because of your age, you're just now having to to use your insurance, pretty much, you know, like she was saying in your twenties, you don't really ever hardly go to the doctor. So you're just now you're learning and hopefully in your lifetime, things are going to really, really change on that front. I'm hoping that we're going to change because we need to change because the system is not serving communities Mm -hmm. and our nation and patients as we need it to. And I'm you know, happy to defend that statement to, to anyone. Sure. Right? Because if we just look at the health of communities, look at the obesity epidemic, I mean, right. we're not where we need to be. And this is going to impact us for decades. So frustrating. Okay, there you go. Will you explain the medical vicious cycle? Oh, I would love to. <laughs> and I think we'll, that's a great one to close on. Mm-hmm. So this Medical Vicious Cycle was created by a nonprofit that I chair called Movement is Life. And we're a multi-stakeholder coalition focused on eliminating health disparities, particularly in musculoskeletal medicine, because we know that joint pain is more common in women, women of all race and and Uh ethnicities, more common in rural America, and that there are real disparities for African-American individuals, Hispanic individuals, and those in rural America. Like people tend to forget about rural America as an area where there's a lot of health inequity, but it's huge. It's huge. So our nonprofit is focused on improving that. And one of the things that we created was what we call the vicious cycle. We have a chapter on it in the book. And if you think about it, you start with joint pain. When someone has joint pain, they decrease their level of of physical activity. They become more sedentary. Then they gain weight because they don't change the way they eat. 
that extra weight puts more pressure on the joint. And so they get in this cycle where the joint gets basically arthritic. And I mentioned earlier, you know, even 10 extra pounds is 30 to 60 pounds of increased pressure on the knee. So it's very impactful. And the key to breaking that cycle is movement, right? Because movement keeps our joints healthy. It helps us keep our weight down. But what we also see when people become heavy and less physically active is the development of comorbidities, meaning other medical conditions that are related, such as diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, and depression, which is very under-recognized, but critically important. Now, in that medical vicious cycle, anyone can get trapped. An affluent white male CEO can get trapped in that cycle. Sure. But it's much more likely that the lower socioeconomic woman um, who may be African-American or Latina or the woman in rural America is going to get trapped in that cycle because of social determinants of health, right? What kind of access do they have to medical care? Do they have money for out-of-pocket costs? Can Do they have transportation, right, to get to see their doctor? Do they even have internet access so that they could do telemedicine? Right. So those social determinants have a huge impact on who gets trapped in this medical vicious cycle. And then surrounding those uh, social determinants are policies, both public and private policies that have a huge impact on the social determinants. For example, is it safe for you to walk in your neighborhood, right? How do we create public policy that encourages safe outdoor space so everyone can go out and have a higher level of physical activity. I mean, I could go on and on about this, but we have a chapter on it in the book and it it really helps illustrate the inner relationships between all of these things mm-hmm. and you know how important policy is and social determinants in terms of health outcomes. Right. Even I'm sure with the nearness of a grocery store or, you know, the cost of fresh food. Correct. So it's all, it it, it really is a cycle. Well, ladies, I have enjoyed this so much. Yeah. Thank you so very, very much. And I hope we both hope so much that this helps women and just informs and educates women to be better advocates for themselves and for women maybe that are less fortunate. Absolutely. We, we have a chapter in the book on being a health promoter because uh-huh. I firmly believe that, you know, each of us can help the other have better health, whether that's bringing, you know, healthy snacks to the office, if you're still in the office or mm-hmm. saying to the family, um, which I actually did last night, Hey, let's go for a walk. Uh-huh. Right? My husband and my, my daughter why don't we just go out for a walk? It's uh, even if it's 15 minutes, it's a lovely mm. evening. We mm. just have a nice dinner. Let's just go for a walk. And then we'll come home and you guys can do the dishes. <laughs> <laughs> Which would make them encourage them to walk longer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like the That's dishes great. are on you. The dishes are on you. <laughs> That's wonderful. Yeah. Oh, well, we are going to link to the book in the show notes. And thank you, Dr. Mary, for sharing all of this incredible wisdom with us. It's been my pleasure. 
Okay, everyone, we'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for tuning into this episode on the Style That Binds Us podcast. If you like this podcast, make sure to tell a friend and subscribe. You can be a part of growing with us. Also, do you know about our weekly newsletter? You'll get access to exclusive content in our newsletter that we don't post anywhere else. Our newsletter comes out every Tuesday with the exception of the third Thursday of the month for Allison's special Celebrating Life After 40 edition. Head to the bottom of the Style That Binds Us website to subscribe.